For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. This is John Anderson Direct with Greg Sheridan. Please note that John Anderson Direct is recorded live via online streaming, which means that sometimes the audio quality is less than optimum. My guest today is Greg Sheridan, well known to Australians, but many people beyond Australia. He's one of our country's foremost security experts and commentators. He's the foreign affairs editor for the Australian newspaper. He's written seven or eight books, I think, uh, on Asia, on Asia-Australia relationships, on Australia-American relationships. He's interviewed prime ministers and presidents around the world. He's lived in Australia. He's a native, of course, of Australia, uh, the United States and Beijing. He's internationally respected as a very clear thinker and as a very widely read human being. His latest book is Christians, The Urgent Case for Jesus in Our World. Well, Greg, welcome. I have to say that I think this is a really important book. It's also terrifically well written. It reflects great scholarship. The wit is sparkling. The insights are extraordinary. Uh, and it's very readable. And I'll, I'll start at the deep end. It seems to me that there are two atheists that I could name, uh, important and respected figures, who say, in effect... This book's worth reading. One is Richard Dawkins. You quote him uh, uh, in, on page 41 saying that uh, Bible literacy is vitally important for our culture. Uh, so there you go, the most popular and prominent atheist in our day saying it matters. And then our very own and very respected Richard Glover, author and ABC broadcaster, writes this, vividly written, compellingly argued, Christians, as in the name of the book, will captivate believers and non-believers alike. Jesus leaps, sorry, jumps from the pages of this book. So, Greg, you'd written the earlier book, which argues the case for God. Now you've written this on the New Testament and its importance, Jesus and his friends and supporters then and now. Why did you write the book? Can you give us an overview why you wrote it? Uh, and why is it that even thoughtful and prominent atheists are saying studying these things actually matters? Well, John, thank you very much. And it's a real joy to be with you. And of course, uh, you figure in the book and you're, uh, you know, part of the inspiration for the book. So um, let's declare that uh, straight away. Um, yeah, my two books are my little effort to rebut the whole modernist project of the last 300 years. So it's had two central propositions. The first is that God is dead. And God is no longer important and uh, we can forget about God. So the first book, God is Good for You, tried to address that. And the second modernist proposition has been the New Testament is all lies. You can't trust anything in the New Testament. It's all fiction. It was written much later. It's uh, a result of an oral tradition that has no historical value. It's not true. And therefore, it ought not to govern our lives. Whereas, in fact, uh, we now discover that everything we know from archaeology and history leads us to think that the New Testament is is pretty accurate. But, um, and I'm sure we'll come back to that, but John, you asked the question, why did I write the book? A couple of reasons, really. One is that some people said to me after the last book, God is good for you, they said, look, Greg, that's not a bad effort at defending the idea of belief in God, but where is the living Jesus? In, in that. It, it's a bit dry without the flesh and blood human being of Jesus Christ. And I took that criticism to heart, really. I mean, it was a well-meant uh, and positive criticism, uh, because all of Christianity centers on the person of Jesus Christ. And, uh, you know, spending a lot of time in the New Testament, like, like most Christians, I had read bits of the New Testament as individual verses to to uh, meditate on. But 
just spending time in the New Testament, the story of Jesus Christ is so uh, immediate. The story of the crucifixion is so graphic. Uh, the um, personality of Jesus and his first followers, Paul, Mary, John, Peter, they're astonishingly vivid and human figures. And of course, this goes to Dawkins' comment, we're kind of whiting Christianity out of the culture. So the very thing which shaped our culture over 2000 years, we're determining that our students will never hear about and we'll never, we'll never discuss. So I thought, well, here's my thimble full of, of knowledge to reintroduce this to people and also take, take on board the modern scholarship, which is validating the historicity of the New Testament. Can I ask you a slightly provocative question? Um, and and it's, this is relevant for me as well as for you uh, when we go out to defend faith. On page 107, and you're a very respected investigative journalist, amongst other things, with a, you know, a, very, um, a very high quality reputation to defend. You say on page 107, I believe the Gospels are true and I believe that they are inspired. Is it possible to be genuinely empirical if you have a position of faith about the evidence? And I, uh, and to, not to want to preempt your argument, but as I understand it, you really set out the case very clearly for the historicity of the New Testament. You also say it doesn't necessarily prove the miracles or the resurrection. But how empirical can you be? Because it's, it's worth remembering that Peter Hitchens his brother Christopher, you know, renowned atheist, uh, Peter wrote a book, uh, Rage Against God, uh, and he said in that, uh, that in the end, we actually all make choices. It's not evidence that persuades us one way or the other, no matter how clever we think we are. So that's true, John, and that's a wonderfully complex bundle of paradoxes involved there. I do believe that uh, belief is ultimately an act of the will rather than the intellect but belief cannot outrage the intellect. So yep. in a sense, the, the intellectual um, dimension of my work is to show that there is no intellectual barrier. There's no barrier in reason to believing in Christianity, but it's seldom or probably never that you argue anyone into Christianity on a rational, on a purely rational basis, because it's much more important to experience the friendship of Jesus Christ than to know about the history or the possibility of Jesus Christ. Although, you know, once you know about it, of course, you can ask for belief. But I really want to come to the, the key question you asked, John, which is, is it possible to be objective if you have faith? I would say to you, John, it's not possible to be objective about gospel history if you uh, preclude the idea of the supernatural. Now, this is a, a complex and paradoxical reality. Most human beings throughout all history and most human beings today believe in the supernatural. Most people in the world believe in God and overwhelmingly most people in history believed in God. We're in a little eccentric cul-de-sac in the West where a large number of people no longer believe in God. And what happened with biblical scholarship two or 300 years ago is that it fell under the sway of a group of people who wanted to eliminate the supernatural from history. Now, if you start investigating the gospel with the proposition that every single miraculous or supernatural thing in it is a lie, then that forces you to make up theories to invalidate the gospel. So, in fact, you're not being objective either. And it's actually very rarely, I agree with Peter Hitchens, it's hard to imagine someone coming to the matter entirely with an open mind because if you have an open mind, that means you have to be open to the supernatural. But if you're open to the supernatural, that means you believe in the supernatural and you've, in a sense, already made a choice. If you're open, some people who believe in Christianity say, well, I believe in the supernatural, but I'll investigate it as though I were an atheist. Even that, I think, isn't entirely satisfactory because you, you're constantly looking for weird explanations instead of just looking at the obvious. So I tried to read the Gospels in particular, but also the letters of Paul as a practicing journalist to read them as long form journalism and reportage and then to ask, well, who are the obvious sources? 
not to get into sort of deep philological debate, most of which is kind of pretty marginal and pretty speculative, but just to say from the evidence of this text, who spoke to who here? Well, you read Luke's text, it's full of all this stuff about uh, Mary's um, visit from the Archangel, the Annunciation, the, her pregnancy, the birth of Jesus and so on. You say, well, who could have given him that? Well, the only person who could have given him that information was Mary. So it looks like it's like reading a Bob Woodward book about the White House, you know, who gave Woodward the information about what, uh, you know, what the CIA director was thinking when he woke up in the morning and what he said to his wife and so forth. It's pretty likely it was the CIA director himself, you know. And um, certainly the Gospels have the ring of truth about them. The, the description of the crucifixion is so immediate, so visceral and so vivid. Uh, and um, the, the story is also so compelling at every level. So I, I, I recommend to people reading the New Testament one book at a time. The books aren't very long. To read them as a whole book. And, um, and then in the end, I don't believe that history proves the miracles, but I do believe that history proves that Jesus lived at the time we thought he lived. There's just a wealth of evidence for this that the Gospels were written very close to the time they cover, that the Jewish life they describe is accurately described, the rural Jewish life that they describe. And um, many of the things we thought were anachronisms in the Gospel turn out to be, turn out to be accurate. So there's a, I think there's a very large body of evidence, only some of which I cite, uh, to indicate that the Gospels were written more or less when they said they were written, more or less by the people who said they wrote them. How much power do you find as an investigative journalist, in, you know, considering the words that people put down, the, the observations that they make, that they ring true, if I can put it that way? Uh, to cite an example, one of the things that really hit me at a time when I was thinking deeply about these things was the story of Jesus calming the waters. Um, and it, first challenge, do you believe in the miracles? Well, uh, uh, second challenge, though, um, to move straight to it is that when he calms the waters, he's, he's, the, the disciples have been, you know, they were terrified. They thought they were going to die. Now, if it were a nursery rhyme, if it were fiction, which is so much more amenable to the human mind than fact, as, as G.K. Chesterton, who I know you admire, puts it, uh, if, if it were fiction or a nursery rhyme, they would have all, um, uh, you know, lived happily ever afterwards, having been saved from the, form, uh, the, 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 the storm that they thought was going to drown them. But in fact, they were terrified. Who is this? That to me has an extraordinary ring of authenticity that, 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 that goes beyond fiction. Well, I think you're absolutely right, John. I, I mean, uh, the Gospels and the letters of Paul and the other letters in the New Testament are, are extraordinary. And it's hard to imagine anyone making them up. I quote uh, the great Pierre Rickmans, the greatest sinologist ever to live in Australia and one of the finest intellects who, who says the, the distinctive compelling personality of Jesus uh, is just overwhelming. So Rickmans was a great scholar of Confucius and he certainly believed in the historical figure of Confucius because of the distinctiveness of the analects, the sayings of Confucius. And he comes to the same point about, um, about Jesus. The personality is just so distinctive. But I think you're right in a larger sense too, John, in terms of evidence. If you were forging or making up the Gospels 200 years later, they wouldn't be so ragged. Their very raggedness um, speaks of their truth. I mean, the fact that there are details which diverge amongst them. Now, these details can be reconciled, so they're not necessarily the case that any of them is wrong. But if you were putting a fake document together to convince people of something, you wouldn't have those inconsistencies. Everything would be perfectly consistent. You know, false testimony to the police is generally perfectly consistent. People telling the truth, they, they can remember that they, you know, what the occasion was, but they'll get fuzzy on some detail. You also wouldn't have in all the, um, all the, uh, the human um, bewilderment and clumsiness of life. Um, uh, Peter, so I believe that, um, so in that, that sentence you quoted of me, I believe the Gospels are true and I believe they were inspired. The second half of that sentence is, but they didn't float down from heaven in completed form. They were put together by flesh and blood human beings. 
Luke tells us that he operated like a journalist. He says he went around and interviewed everybody and other accounts had been written and he consulted everything. Then the Gospel of Mark, the tradition is that Peter is his chief source. Now, Mark contains all these terribly uh, unflattering things about Peter. You know, Peter falling asleep in the Garden of Gethsemane uh, in Jesus' agony, Peter denying Jesus three times. Now, that, that also has the ring of Peter saying to Mark, I want you to put this in. I want you to put this in because I want everyone to know how, how fallible and weak I was and how finally Jesus lifted me up uh, for glory. But they've got to know all the mistakes I made. And again, if you were, if you were doing this as a concoction, that's not the way you do it. And then there are a thousand small examples like that. When Jesus first rises from the dead, the first people who see him are women, Mary Magdalene in particular. Well, in the ancient world, the testimony of women was regarded as infinitely less reliable than the testimony of men. It was a very sexist time. And um, if you were forging a document 100 years later, um, you would make the first witness the most reliable bloke. You know, you'd make it James or something, the relative of Jesus, or, or you'd make it Peter himself. The, the, you know, the man who Jesus chose as the leader, you wouldn't make it Mary Magdalene, um, you know, who had had a troubled uh, past and, uh, and all the rest of it. And John, of course, um, the other external evidence, you know, the, the Dead Sea Scrolls confirm the, the accuracy of the life that, um, that the New Testament is describing. Um, the, uh, we found an ossuary, a tomb of a crucified individual which proves that some individuals although crucified had private burials you know the custom was people who were crucified were thrown in a common pit so people used to say well the story of jesus is obviously an anachronism because he wouldn't have had a private burial but we found uh jewish tombs that indicate that that did in fact occasionally happen um then there are the apostolic fathers the people who came just after the apostles papias uh Polycarp, Clement of Rome, these people knew the apostles. So if, if it was all um, a fake, it was a very widespread fake very early on. Then the biblical scholars like to make the gospels very late, but we found actually a fragment of John's gospel in Egypt, which couldn't be later than the end of the first century or the very beginning of the second century. So that puts an absolute outer limit on how late John's gospel was written because it had to be written, had to become accepted as scripture, then it had to be copied out and transported to Egypt all before the end of the first century. The scholars uh, are almost unanimous that Paul's writings date from a couple of decades after Jesus' death. And Paul is writing to established Christian communities saying, as you know, our Lord Jesus Christ has risen from the dead and is our savior and so on. So Christians believed this within a few short years after Jesus was there. Now, this might all still be untrue, but it's not untrue in the way that the Modernist Project said that it was untrue, that it was a long oral tradition written down 200 years later. And, you know, uh, Jesus was retrofitted with his divinity by uh, scheming church hierarchs and so on. That is just not true. Coming to um, <clears throat> the miracles again, and the resurrection. I mean, it's traditionally said, and I'm sure it's right, that Christianity falls or stands on the resurrection. If it's true, Paul himself, the apostle, said it. Uh, you know, uh, if it's not true, then we of all people are most to be pitied. Uh, but if it is true, there's nothing more profound, I would have thought, in human history. But you have a very interesting take in the book that I'd not thought about, as I understand it. And that is that the more radical thought, if you accept that, you know, an all-powerful God who, you know, is able to intervene, has intervened. Something that's even more radical than the idea of the resurrection is the idea of God himself humbling himself to a cross, the crucifixion. I thought that was a very interesting aspect. And, of course, at its heart, you've got to ask, why would God do it, let alone what is it in his personality that as an all-powerful being he would subject himself to the cruelest and most degrading trial process and actual death ever imagined. So, John, I'm very glad that that struck you. It, it certainly strikes me that the crucifixion is the most radical claim 
of Christianity even more than the resurrection. So a lot of religious sensibilities have the idea of God or a polytheistic God walking upon the earth. Now, some of the enemies of religion say Christianity is just like all the other invented religions in history. In fact, I'd say the reverse. I'd say the resemblance of folk religions and polytheistic traditions here and there to elements of Christianity shows how deep in the human DNA the longing for God is. And it's almost as, as Chesterton put it, that mankind was expecting God. You know, it, um, so Krishna walks on the earth, but this all happens in a time before history. It happens in a mythical time. It can't be, it can't be um, falsified. You know, the Greek gods interact with human beings and so on. And of course, the gods by definition uh, are above death or conquer death, if you like. What seems to me to be completely unique in the entire history of human sensibility is the idea that the all-powerful God, so a lot of polytheistic traditions are actually monotheistic because they have beyond the, the gods of polytheism one guiding spirit. Uh, Buddhism can be like this, Hinduism can be like this, even American uh, native Indian traditions can be like this. There is a great spirit behind it all. I've never anywhere come across a human religious sensibility which has the idea of the all-powerful, everlasting, all-knowing, immortal God becoming a human being and then suffering degradation, torture, humiliation, defeat, and physical death. That doesn't occur in any other religious sensibility. And uh, it was outrageous to the ancient world. The crucifixion was the most humiliating death. It was full of humiliation. It was designed to take a long time. Uh, we know that uh, Jesus was three hours on the cross. There were hours of, uh, of torture and public humiliation before that. It was designed as a public spectacle. Uh, it was degrading in every way. It was the death of slaves. Now, there is no religious sensibility in human history which encompasses an idea like that. Then we ask, why did God do this? So we know that Christ did this in order to save human beings, to put us on good terms with God. Paul says, uh, you know, Jesus Christ loved me and poured himself out for me. And uh, it is, you know, the death and resurrection of Jesus are essentially an act of, of, of love for human beings. And uh, the act of creation, creating us, is, is a tremendous act of love on the part of God for us. You know, Fred Rogers from that wonderful movie, uh, A Beautiful Day in the Neighbourhood, says the basic Christian prayer should be, thank you, God, just three words, thank you, God, you know. Um, and, you know, as the old Australian saying has it, I wouldn't be dead for quids. And uh, it, it's, or, or as Frank Capra put it, it's a wonderful life. Um, there's so much to be thankful for. Uh, and the main thing to be thankful for is the, is the intervention of uh, Jesus, which, which wins for us uh, eternal life. Now, John, you can imagine as foreign editor of The Australian, these are very unusual words for me to be uttering, but I do think they're true, and I think it was important to, um, uh, to say the truth. I'm glad you say that because the, the point I wanted to make was that, you know, um, I'm, I have, and I'm sure you do, the utmost respect for people who have thought all of this through and come to the conclusion that um, uh, they don't think there's a God there, they can't believe whatever. Uh, but I, we come to Richard Dawkins uh, uh, and, and he can't believe. And I don't mean to criticise him here. What I'm driving at is the laziness in our culture, I think. Oh, there's a chief scientist, you know, a man of enormous learning in the scientific field who says there's no God. It's immediately destroyed in that argument that just because one scientist says there's no God by the fact that there are other equally eminent scientists who profoundly believe. Francis Collins of the Human Genome Project comes to mind. Uh, the same in an age when journalists particularly, not always the most pious of people, if I can put it that way, uh, overwhelmingly, as we know, um, have a different set of views on God to the broader community. We know that. Um, and uh, uh, so when a senior journalist of your standing challenges their thinking and says, well, we ought to listen to this. And they're joined by uh, 
you know, the, the quality of a person such as a Richard Glover who says these things are important, uh, I think it really matters and I commend your honesty and your courage. We must have these debates. Let me tell you why I think we must have these debates. It was in the key to it was in something you said earlier that the secularism that's overtaken, uh, become so prominent in the West is a, is a tiny proportion and a dying proportion of humanity. We were meant to become secularists. In fact, we live in an age of enormous ferment over beliefs and ideas, and it shows no sign of going away. And as one brilliant Asian uh, um, commentator remarked about the last time we had a great debate about the Australian curriculum and said we were going to focus on Aboriginal studies uh, on sustainability and on Asia, he said, well, you might start by understanding your own culture. And our own culture can't be divorced, I don't think, from an understanding of the influence of Christianity. Well, I think that's right, uh, John. I, th I think you're 100% right. So um, uh, <clears throat> I don't know if this is the right point for me to bring in Paul, but he is certainly critical to the development of, of Western civilization. So you know, some secular historians think that Paul founded Christianity. I reject that. I think Paul was a loyal follower of Jesus Christ and and ex explained the teachings of Jesus Christ. But but everything we like in modern liberalism derives from Christian universalism. And the great statement of Christian universalism uh, comes in Paul's letter to the Galatians, where he says there is neither Jew nor Greek. Um, slave nor free, male nor female, you are all one in Christ Jesus. And this was absolutely revolutionary to the ancient world. The ancient world was based on the principle of hierarchy and inequality. Men were superior to women. Masters were superior to slaves. Firstborn sons were superior to, uh, you know, later born sons. And this was regarded as inherent in nature and nobody even questioned it. Uh, masters could abuse their slaves in any way they liked. The slaves were, were their property. And all of a sudden, Christianity comes along and it says, no, you're wrong. Women are equal to men in the fundamental human relationship, which is the relationship to God. Slaves are as likely to find salvation as their masters. Um, foreigners have, uh, have human dignity, human souls, and Paul didn't mount a military challenge to the ancient world, but he absolutely revolutionized its mind. Uh, it was very common in the ancient world to kill female babies because male babies were more valuable to you. Christians didn't do that, of course. So their families had lots of girls. And as a result, they're much happier, much happier families. I mean, imagine how dismal life would be if it was all blokes. And, uh, and Paul thought- It's a bit this, of a problem in parts of China today. Absolutely, absolutely. So China is a good example because without Christianity, you don't get a sort of kumbaya, you know, um, Franklin Roosevelt, sunny uplands of rational discourse. You get a pre-Christian paganism, which is very brutal and very savage. The idea that every human being has human rights, inalienable human dignity, it's not a given. It's only a given because we've, we've had 2,000 years of Christianity telling us and in the initial generation, when you abandon Christianity, you still use Christian categories. So you live off the capital. But we've now been abandoning Christianity for so long that uh, we are, I think, heading to a kind of a pre-Christian paganism. The last time we had a pagan environment, it was hypersexualized. It was very cruel to women. It was very savage. Um, columnist I greatly admire, Ross Duthat, says, if you didn't like the religious right, you just wait till you meet the post-religious right. Yeah. The left are crazy if they think they're going to win forever. No, 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 no. But they will be opposed by people who are much more savage, much more ruthless, who are obsessed with their own nationalisms and tribalisms than, than were their, um, their Christian opponents. And uh, the, the whole uh, amalgam of values that we enjoy as modern liberalism broadly defined emerge organically and directly out of Christianity. And a lot of my friends, conservatives who are not Christian believers, and I, I'm not criticizing anybody in the book at all, but they would say, well, we can have the values, but we can't have the belief. Now you can't have the belief merely in order to have the values, 
But I just think as a matter of analytical judgment, we can't have the values if we don't have the belief. Ultimately, the values are unsustainable without the belief. Um, an aside, my reference to China was that we know that under the one child policy, vast numbers of baby girls never grew up, never got the opportunity to, to live. Uh, and that was true of the pagan and ancient and cruel world as well. And Rodney Stark argues that, in fact, the explosion of Christianity happened largely because little girls were valued equally with little boys and allowed to live. That's a profound point that is so easily overlooked. And it brings me to something else I want to... I'll come back to universalism and Paul in a moment because I want to explore that in the context of our modern society. But before we do, G.K. Chesterton is famous for the remark that stop believing in God and you won't believe in nothing, you'll believe in anything. Now, that's where our culture's gone. Do you think that one of our major problems in the West is that we no longer have a narrative that binds us together? Yes, absolutely. I think that's a critical question for the West. So um, I don't in this book argue an instrumentalist view of Christianity. I don't think, I'm not saying believe in Christianity because that'll save Western civilization. But incidentally, just by the way, it will save Western civilization. So I, I say believe in Christianity because I think it's true. And the evidence is overwhelming that it's true and um, it fits with our senses, it fits with our rationality. And, uh, and who can ignore the personality of Jesus Christ. But a separate argument is that the West was formed by Christianity. Now, here's a paradox. Christianity is truly a universal religion. It's open to every human being, whatever their background. The majority of Christians today are not Westerners. People in China are suffering persecution in order to live out their Christian faith. The same is true in Pakistan, in Africa, these people are 24 karat Christians suffering much more persecution than we could ever imagine. They are, they are absolute roll gold Christians. However, it is also the case, it is a simple matter of historical fact that Western civilization grew up as a result of Christianity and in a dialogue with Christianity. It's also true that Christians did a lot of bad things over that time, and no doubt about that. I think overwhelmingly, though Christianity was a force for the good, but certainly a lot of Christians did a lot of bad things. But now the West is going crazy. It is abandoning the roots of its own civilization. So a couple of years ago, John, I wrote a memoir. I went to all these book festivals, writers' festivals, very nice of them to invite me. It was not a single book written from a pro-Christian or a pro-Jewish point of view. Imagine going to a writers' festival in Islam and not finding a single book, uh, in Indonesia rather, and not finding a single book that dealt with Islam. Imagine going to a writer's festival in India and not finding a single book that dealt with Hinduism, or in Thailand, not finding a single book that dealt with Buddhism. That is crackers. All of these other societies have vigorous national and civilizational narratives. And with the Chinese, it's largely nationalism. Same with the Russians, really, it's, it's nationalism. Uh, with other civilizations, it is often other religions, Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism. Only in the West are we saying the very idea of a narrative, of a transcendent purpose, of uh, a metaphysical purpose. We reject the very idea of that. And uh, I think we're going mad as a result. The human psyche is designed to have meaning. Viktor Frankl, in his beautiful book, Man's Search for Meaning, he was a survivor of Auschwitz and uh, Hitler's death camps. He says the essential need of all human beings is for meaning. With meaning, a human being can bear anything. When he knows why, he can bear anything. But without meaning, a human being is a very, very dangerous person. Uh, a human being then tends to look only for intensity of experience. And in the end, if, um, if there's no absolute, then there's no reason to judge things absolutely out of order, such as, you know, killing large numbers of people or enslaving people or deciding that some categories of human being are subhuman and ought to be uh, ought to be killed. That's the road we're heading down. It's quite crazy. However, this is not an essay of cultural despair. There are tremendous green shoots, new movements. Although Christianity in the West is in ambient statistical decline. There are tremendous signs of rebirth and regrowth within the Christian 
movement in the West as well. Um, it does strike me, um, I want to be careful how I put this, because I do read the comments and they're very illustrative and I appreciate them hugely when I have one of these conversations. And sometimes people feel I'm prickly about atheists. And as I said earlier, I have the greatest respect for people who have really thought it through and come to that conclusion, even though I disagree with them. I mean, that's, that's my motto. We've got to have a reasoned and a polite debate. But I do throw this challenge out and you make the point in the book, there's nothing new about the new atheists. It's all been said before, from the 1860s on, particularly, uh, you know, alternative explanations for who we are and how we came about and so forth have been very fashionable. Their great problem is that they have not been able to fashion a narrative that unifies us and satisfies us. And I think that's one of the great challenges because the monument to secularism is all around us. It's in confusion, it's in tribalism, it's in a return to identity politics. Identity politics is not new. That's just the law of the jungle where you identify with others to uh, seek safety against everybody else. Um, and we have record levels of, as we know, anxiety and depression and self-harm. It's, it's not actually a pretty picture. And the challenge for people who reject the need for a unifying narrative I think is to say, well, how on earth are we ever going to make our societies work? Because the story's not too good at the moment. Well, that's right. I mean, human beings are social creatures and they, they live in societies. They want to have a social purpose as well as an individual purpose. Um, human beings also yearn for God. They yearn for meaning. They yearn for the transcendent. I mean, if you take uh, God away from them, uh, the, the consequences are generally very ugly. I am um, not critical of atheists generally. That's that's fine. And there are lots of individual atheists who transcend this and live lives of purpose uh, themselves. But for the society, it's disastrous. I am very critical of Dawkins. I think his um, his books about Christianity are tremendously dishonest. And he said, so, even though he does say we ought to have biblical literacy, and I quote him on that, but he sets up many straw men. He doesn't deal with contemporary, well, not even contemporary, he doesn't deal with traditional mainstream Christianity. He takes the most, the weirdest fundamentalist he can find and then asserts that that stands for all of Christianity. He doesn't, in my view, deal honestly with history. And he puts his old 19th century arguments next to a lot of irrelevant science. So he'll say the, the universe is 14 billion years old. Well, that proves... God couldn't have created it because why would he waste his time spending 14 billion years just to produce this little planet for us? Well, how on earth would Richard Dawkins know what God would do? That strikes me as absolutely characteristic of God that he would spend 14 billion years preparing this beautiful garden for us. And the argument, it's 14 billion years old, therefore it can't be God. That's not an argument. That's just a prejudice. And uh, most of the new atheist stuff is not really an argument. Um, it's just a prejudice. But there is, as a result, a tremendous ignorance in our society. So just reading the scriptures, I read a lot of the Old Testament for the last book and a lot of the New Testament in detail and repeatedly for this book. And you think, gosh, this is the most astonishing literature that the human race has ever produced. Even if you don't believe it's true, the Gospel of John is the most astounding piece of human literature. Uh, N.T. Wright, in his splendid biography of Paul, argues that Paul should be taught in philosophy, history, politics, psychology classes, because this 80 or 90 pages is the most riveting, transcendent, penetrating, brilliant, integrated prose that human beings have ever created. And yet, where do you study Paul today? In what high school course or what university course does anybody read the letter to Romans or the letter to Galatians or something. So we'll subject all our poor kids to the safe schools program, but we'll make sure they never, they never come across Paul or any of the other scriptures. That strikes me just at the level of base knowledge as crazy. And given how central this knowledge has been to our own civilization, uh, willful self-harm. Yeah, uh, Malcolm Muggridge, now he was sneered at by many people after he began became a Christian believer, but of course he was one of the most powerful minds of the last, well, ever. And he said, 
of the introduction to John, it is the most sublime piece of literature ever put together. Now, we ought to listen to Malcolm Muggeridge because he warned very clearly uh, of, uh, of how we were undoing ourselves, how we were eating ourselves out from within 30, 40, 50 years ago. And he gave us unbelievably prescient in the things he warned about and where they would lead to. But that's, uh, I want to come back to then, um, uh, well, just before I do, uh, you do have a very interesting chapter on angels. You even have some data on the fact that um, um, uh, most Americans still believe in angels and a very large proportion of Australians still believe in angels. As an aside, before you respond to that, it's quite interesting. We don't talk about them much. And yet there's a sort of a, an awareness that they on the part of a lot of people, that they exist and the belief that they um, play a role. Uh, it's interesting, um, too, that uh, about a third of Australians, despite the sneering and the lack of biblical literacy, uh, literacy, still believe the resurrection actually happened. But angels and your book. Well, look, John, it's lovely to be able to talk about angels. Um, so <laughs> I, I am a believing Christian. I'm tremendously, I've never had any trouble with belief. I've had the most enormous difficulty living up to the most elementary standards of Christian behavior. And one reason for being slow to speak this way is because you don't want Christianity judged by your own life or anything like that. But it does seem to me if you're a believing Christian, it's all—it's impossible really to be a believing Christian and not believe in miracles and not believe in angels. The Bible is just full of miracles and it's just full of angels. And really, if you if you say, well, the Bible is good except for miracles and angels, first of all, you've got to strip out about 30% of the Bible, tremendous amount of the New Testament. And secondly, then you think, well, why bother with it? If, if 30 or 40% of it is all lies, look, I'd rather be at the races. You know, just forget about it. If it's all baloney, just, just leave it be. Angels figure very prominently in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. They're right the way through. They're at the beginning of the New Testament with the Archangel Gabriel coming to Mary. They're at the end of the New Testament with Michael in the book of Revelation, uh, slaying, um, you know, fighting on behalf of God, slaying the devil and so on. And angels have persisted in popular culture. Uh, and a belief in angels is, um, is very widespread. Many human traditions beyond Christianity understand that there is something in the spirit world. Now, one of the great things of Christianity is it frees people from superstition, not by abolishing the spirit world, but by saying the spirit world is rational and comes under the order of God like everything else. So, uh, you, you know, there's a long Christian tradition that you have a guardian angel who, who helps you. Um, J.R.R. Tolkien, the author of um, The Lord of the Rings, the best-selling novel of the 20th century, hundreds of millions of copies sold, one of the great works of creative genius. Tolkien wrote to his son, who was in the Air Force and during World War II and in combat and was likely to die at any time. Never, he said, never be afraid to ask for the help of your guardian angel. And Tolkien and his son had a, a marvellous dialogue about the role of the guardian angel and the accessibility of the guardian angel to... Uh, to help you. And um, Tolkien meditates deeply on this. He sees a shaft of light in the, in the church, lighting up a speck of dust. And he thinks the light is like the angel itself. He speculates, this is not theology, just speculation, that perhaps uh, God's love for humanity is so strong that this is what creates the angels. This is not, that's not an orthodox speculation. But there was Tolkien, one of the greatest minds of the 20th century, uh, speculating in this way. Angels have done very, very well in popular culture. You know, uh, that great movie we all love, It's a Wonderful Life, was about an angel. The next year, another great Hollywood movie, The Bishop's Wife, had Cary Grant playing an angel. Well, that's great PR for angels. You know, he was the, the suavest, <laughs> most charming man in the whole world. They never did quite as well as that again, but then you had all these TV series, Touched by an Angel, Highway to Heaven, and so on. And they are mocked at and scoffed at by contemporary culture and scientists, and yet they live in the popular mind. And of course, so does the devil. And people have a very real sense of the devil and the personification of evil. You know, Pope Francis regarded as a bit of a lefty and uh, kind of a progressive uh, Catholic and so on. 
he is always talking about the devil and the presence of the devil and the the danger of the devil all the time. And he frequently talks to about angels. And again, I, I don't see how you can have Christian belief and not believe in angels. I mean, angels come and minister to Jesus in Gethsemane. Uh, they minister to him after the Satan tempts him in the, in the, uh, in the desert. So the New Testament is absolutely full of them. And um, I read a book by Billy Graham about angels called God's Secret Agents. They're meant, one of their key jobs is to help us. And I think we need all the help we can get. Hard to argue with that. Can we jump to the PM? He was open and transparent. You, you talk about people of faith uh, uh, in Australia today. There's some very interesting stories there. The book's worth writing, reading, buying. Skip over the chapter about me, but um, uh, some fascinating people have done, have done, and are doing extraordinary things. You've got the Prime Minister, General Cosgrove, former Governor General Bill Hayden. It's amazing modesty and honesty that comes through uh, uh, in Bill Hayden's uh, words, and so on and so forth. But the PM, you can't help liking him. Whether you agree with him or not, he's open and he's transparent and he's honest and he's modest. They're all qualities that we traditionally uh, admire. So I want to say uh, one up for the PM in the way that he comes out of your book. I found the Prime Minister very frank and open. There was no question that I asked him that he was reluctant to answer. And I think he handles the public dimension of his faith very well. Doesn't try to ram it down anyone's throat, but he doesn't run away from who he is. He's inspired by his Christianity, but his Christianity doesn't tell him what he should do about fiscal policy or whether he should regulate, uh, deregulate the labour market uh, or anything like that. And that's precisely where I wanted to go now, because I don't think I'm misquoting him when he made the accurate observation that the Bible's not a policy handbook. However, to go back to our earlier discussion, you touched on Paul uh, and universalism. Can we explore that for a moment? Because it does seem to me that whilst the Bible is patently obviously not a political handbook, it's not a party political handbook, it's not a policy handbook, it is profoundly political in the influence that it has. Now, you said that Paul reset the way we think. Can you describe how that happened? He committed uh, uh, us to think carefully about universalism. As Menzies put it, all souls equal in the eyes of heaven. So... I may disagree with you, but I have a responsibility to recognise that a higher authority says you matter as much as I do. That's a pretty useful way for a politician to think about his opponents. And it might be useful for people in an age of identity politics to recognise if they have any concept of a higher being, that he might have a different view of your enemy to the one that you have. Uh, but let's just explore for a moment. It seems to me that in a whole range of ways, um, Christianity has been profoundly political. And then we'll come to another religion, which is communism, if you accept that it's a religion after that. But think of just some of the big picture things. The whole idea of universalism, that um, Jack's as good as his mate, uh, that there's no division between men and women, between Greek nor Jew, that's racism, of course, uh, uh, or between master and slave, um, all one in, in Christ. It has been a Christian understanding of, of the nobility and of the failings and the weaknesses of human beings that has led us to find this model, it seems to me. And it's therefore, it's a long-winded way of saying, isn't it the book, in fact, a profoundly political one? Well, that's right, John. Uh, so again, these are complex and difficult waters. Um, I do think human rights is part of the central part of the whole Jewish and Christian tradition. So the universalism of God is evident even in the Old Testament. The great first statement in the ancient world for human rights is in the book of Genesis, that humanity is created in the likeness and image of God. That was not the, uh, the understanding of humanity before then. And um, even in a book like uh, Jonah, uh, you know, God tells Jonah to preach to the Ninevites who are not Jewish. So God is the God of the Ninevites. There are many instances in the Old Testament that make it clear that the God of the Jews in the Old Testament is the universal God of all mankind. And um, there are passages in the Old Testament uh, which say that, you know, there, there, there will be a light for the Gentiles and so on. It's more explicit in the New Testament, but the universalism of God and the universalism of human rights is evident even in the Old Testament. 
Now, I agree with you about universalism and human rights. They emerge organically out of Christianity. And therefore, I believe when you ditch Christianity, you're going to find it very hard to sustain those values. I had a, um, a debate on Q&A with the atheist philosopher Peter Singer. I admire Peter Singer. He's a very fine person, a very fine philosopher. He's a very useful philosopher because he thinks ideas through to their logical conclusion. I was taxing him on this episode of Q&A about a position he argued in a book that uh, handicapped children whose parents don't want to look after them should simply be allowed to die and should not be given medical intervention. And I was disagreeing with him and he said, Greg, do you really believe they should be kept alive simply because they're members of our species? And I said, yes, that is exactly what I believe, that being human beings means they have an inherent human dignity. Now, that is entirely an idea which emerges out of Christianity. And when you get completely post-Christian, so that you are totally cut off from the roots of Christianity, you then will get, in a very civilised way by people like Singer, and in a very crude way by other people, a rejection even of the universality of humanity, so that the old, the frail, the sick, the handicapped, anyone we don't like, is regarded as less than human. And a final point I'd make, John, responding to your profound and interesting reflections. I agree that Christians ought to be able to draw more explicitly on their values in public life. Bob Hawke did in a, in a peculiar way. He, he once made a very powerful speech in which he said, surely the fatherhood of God implies the brotherhood of man. And, uh, you know, I think Hawke was absolutely right. Um, I guess two things have militated against it. One is the uh, new anti-Christian secularist environment, which means everybody else is allowed to draw on their life experience and express their values, but not a Christian. The only Christian acceptable in public life now is a social justice Christian, and preferably one who denies all the church's teachings on life issues. The church is uncompromising on life issues. So you can't kill innocent babies. You can't kill innocent older people. Um, and the churches are right to be uncompromising on those issues. The other thing though, I'd say, um, I don't want to kind of validate the left here, but I do think in the United States, certain politicians are too ready to identify their particular policies with Christianity. So Christianity does give you very clear principles. You must be kind to people. You must treat your opponents with human dignity. You must treat everyone with human dignity. It doesn't tell you whether you should fight poverty by giving more welfare or by deregulating the labour market so that more people get jobs and so on. And some American politicians are a bit inclined to say, uh, you know, unless you support my tax cuts, you are an agent of godless socialism or something. And this, this kind of gives Christianity a bad reputation to, to identify Christianity with what is merely your own policy position. This happens in Australia much more on the left now than the right. A left-wing Christian is much more inclined to say, anybody who doesn't agree with my policy on you know, uh, open borders or something is against Christianity. Whereas a legitimate ethical Christian question is, how do we welcome the stranger but stop people from drowning at sea and at the same time protect our own sovereignty? So I end up with a position which says, let's have a big refugee intake but let's police our borders securely. Some left-wing Christians say, unless you have open borders, you are not a good Christian. I don't think we should get into that. And I know you're not remotely suggesting that. I don't think we should get into that practice. But I do think Christian politicians ought to be able to access, explain and talk about the Christian inspiration of their, uh, of their overall public policy position. I think it's almost impossible for you to leave your worldview, if you like, at the cabinet door, the way one of my cabinet colleagues suggested ought to happen when we were in government. I don't think you can do it. Uh, I don't think you can leave your worldview behind. And coming to worldviews, let's come to China, which is a really interesting question now for all of us in so many ways. You quote in your book a Chinese studies expert uh, at Monash, Kevin uh, Carico, I think, I hope I have that pronunciation correct, um, um, 
He says that Marxism or communism is very much a religious belief system that views other religious belief systems as competition. Um, he goes on uh, and uh, says that it, Marxism commands an all-embracing loyalty. It's an attempt to bring heaven to the earth. Um, and that uh, the Marxist idea is that the proletariat which is being exploited will be rewarded when communism is fully realised. And here's the really interesting one. It's a competing monotheism, but the Communist Party is God. Now, for all sorts of reasons, China is a place that we need to understand. Uh, the world is now dividing, uh, it seems to me, between the, those who still believe in democracy, weakened as they are, and the new authoritarian regimes. Um, we don't seem to understand our own faith traditions, our own worldviews that have sustained us in the past. We have great difficulty understanding the nature of communism. And here he's nailed it. In communism, the party is God. You owe your loyalties to it ahead of even uh, your loved ones, your community, even your nation. Your first loyalties are to the party. It is God. And it will determine, and it will vary from time to time, what is wrong and what is right, what is moral and what is immoral. How... Do we understand, uh, you're a foreign affairs expert as much as uh, a man who understands faith, the religious nature uh, of communism in an age when it's very hard for us to understand the strength of religious belief? Well, John, I'm thrilled that you lighted on that passage because I, I, there are two chapters on Chinese Christians in the book. And Chinese Christians are magnificent and uh, the expansion of Christianity in China has been one of the fabulous stories of the last hundred years. You know, in 1949, when the communists took over, there were three or four million Chinese Christians. There are now somewhere between 60 million and 120 million. For reasons I outline in the book, it's very, very hard to get an accurate picture. But even if it's the lower figure of 60 million, to go from 3 million to 60 million under the enormous persecution that Christians have faced, almost relentlessly, and certainly much more today than 10 years ago in China, is an astonishing um, growth of Christianity. But I do believe that uh, the academic you quote and another academic, Jeremy Barme, uh, convinced me completely, and my own long experience of the Cold War, communism in a sense was always a competing religious view to Christianity. Now, communism fell in the Soviet Union, and we stupidly thought that meant the end of communism, whereas, in fact, the biggest, most powerful communist country in the world is China. And the idea that the Chinese Communist Party does not have ideology is utterly foolish. So the Chinese Communist Party, I agree with the academic you quoted and with other academics, is inherently a religious organization. It's best to understand Chinese communism as one of the great world religions. And it's natural in a sense that the Chinese Communist Party see Christianity as a competitor because it offers an alternative plausibility structure, an alternative belief structure. So communism has in a sense always been a religion, but Chinese communism is a particular religion. What do I mean when I say that? It provides a total view of the human experience. It explains all of the human experience from birth to death and beyond. It, uh, it is very scriptural. It is full of the study of its own sacred scriptures and it adds to its sacred scriptures and very occasionally subtracts from its straight sacred scriptures. It has its own metaphysics. It, one of its purposes is to provide an existential meaning and purpose to the lives of Chinese citizens. So the purpose of the Chinese citizen in, in Communist Party terms is to advance the interests of the Chinese Communist Party, advance the interests of the Chinese nation and complete the revolution of the proletariat and the creation of the perfectly just society, which the communist society will be uh, in due course. The um, Chinese Communist Party has its eternal teachings, which it calls Marxism-Leninism thought, and it has its specific teachings for today, which it calls Mao Zedong thought. So the eternal principles of Marxism, Leninism, and then it adapts those eternal principles to the period of history that it's living through. 
and the the label that it uses for that is Mao Zedong thought. Uh, Jeremy Barme, a brilliant, brilliant sinologist whom I quote in the book, makes the point that the Chinese were tremendously influenced by Stalin uh, in a positive way. They, they didn't regard Stalin as a bad guy, you know, murderer of tens of millions of people. The Chinese Communist Party murdered tens of millions of people. It was well and truly on a league with Stalin. But it, it accepted much of the culture of communism that Stalin brought. Now, for a time, it sort of rejected Marxist economics, but it never completely rejected Marxist economics. And now it's much more emphasizes state assets and state leadership in, in the economy. But the real point of Marxism-Leninism is in the Leninism and the practice of Stalin. And all of that is about state power, party power, and reforming the individual human mind. Now, Stalin was a, was a horrible murderous communist dictator, but he did, as a matter of fact, attend a Russian Orthodox seminary as a young man. He never aspired to the priesthood. He was never religious or anything, but, but he did attend. Um, uh, this was the best way for his family to get him an education. He had a very dysfunctional family. And he uh, imported into his practice of communism a good deal of the methodology of Eastern Christianity. And this has found its way into communism, uh, into Chinese communism. So the practice of the confessional, the public confession, confessing your sins against the party. And this is the way the party typically conducts uh, interrogation and, um, you know, reform of, of an individual. You know, you go down, you, you go to a labor camp, they don't just beat you to death or they don't beat a confession out of you. They change your mind. And they do this through relentless confession, relentless psychological pressure. It's very intimidating and vicious and nasty, but it's not as crude as just beating you. At the end, they don't just want your submission physically. They want the submission of your mind. And uh, one of the reasons we keep underestimating the strength of purpose of the Chinese communists is that we, we look on the Communist Party like it's a corrupt set of gangsters you know, like some other third world dictatorship or something like that. It is partly that there's an enormous amount of corruption. And for a lot of people, these beliefs mean nothing and so forth. But there is at its core, the alarm, the spirit and the purpose of one of the great world religions. And there are almost as many people under Chinese communism as there are Christians in the entire world. So communism as a religion has not, um, has not failed in the way that we'd like it to fail. And then there are half a dozen other communist countries to North Korea and, and Cuba and Vietnam and so on. And uh, I think this perspective on the Chinese communists helps explain why they are so uh, hateful towards Christianity. They, it's, they do see Christianity as a foreign religion and foreign gods, but they, they care about Christianity, not so much because it appeals to the marginalized, although it certainly does that, but because it appeals to well-educated Chinese who find no meaning at all in communism and no meaning at all in the aesthetics of the Chinese Communist Party and who have the normal human yearning for meaning and find meaning in Christianity. The communists find that a tremendous threat and they're extremely uneasy all the time about the presence and growth of Christianity. A couple of hundred years ago, for a brief period, they saw Christians as an element of modernization. So the first Jesuits who went into China, Matteo Ricci and so on. I recount one of the dialogues between a Chinese emperor and one of Ricci's successors, one of the one of the Jesuits. At first they thought, well, these Jesuits know a lot about astronomy and books and so on. Let's let's see what we can learn from them. But very early on, they were very uh, suspicious of um, of them as an alien cultural influence. And I think the Communist Party now sees them as a competitor in um, explaining the universe, explaining the meaning of life to Chinese citizens. A Chinese lady, an academic in Singapore, told me 10 years ago that the best chance for a peaceful new order globally was the rise of the church in China. It was an interesting reflection, a Chinese academic lady. Uh, so what happens in China is very, very important for all of us. I think we would agree. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, it's quite critical. And the Chinese Christians are not political. 
They don't really want to displace the Communist Party or anything like that. They may have that in their deepest hearts, but all they want is to be allowed to live decently and they would like a kinder, gentler society. And that, of course, will have political consequences. If you have a kinder, gentler society, more concerned with aged care and uh, acts of charity and solidarity and finding meaning and purpose in life, you'll have a less militaristic, aggressive, ideological uh, government. Um, so I do think the, the role of Christians is absolutely critical for China's future, but it's not as it were, as the role of an active opposition. It's not like Christians in Eastern Europe in the Cold War. They will change China just by being who they are. And that's why the Communist Party is so tremendously paranoid about them. Well, Greg, uh, we could talk forever. Uh, it's a very meaty book. You cover so much and it's so well written and so engaging that um, I can only say uh, buy the book. Uh, and I hope the debate continues because I don't think you could think of things that are much more important for the future of humanity than the things that we've been talking about today. I, I thank you very much indeed. Well, John, it's a real pleasure to uh, talk to you and you've been an inspiration for so much of this. And um, thanks very much for, uh, for having me. And, um, you know, uh, it was such fun to write this book. Uh, I mean, if I ever get to the pearly gates, one question will be, so you had all this fun and you claim that was a life's work, huh? But uh, in any event, thanks so much, John. Thank you. You've been listening to John Anderson Direct. For further content, visit johnanderson.net.au. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.